time where the church takes a month every year to meditate on how we live in between the first and second comings of Christ. And so it's a time where we can reflect back on how Jesus came that first time in order to reconcile us to God. It's a time to think forward to how he's going to come one more time to finish restoring everything that's broken in this fallen creation. In other words, it's a time to reflect on our needs and God's promises, on how God not only tells us what is wrong with us and what's wrong with our world, but how he promises to undo all that's wrong. And in that sense, it's a time that reminds us that we can trust him for the future because we've already seen him fulfill some of those promises in the past. Really good time for us as a church, but it's also a challenging time because it's a time where the church calendar and our societal calendars don't quite line up together. Our larger world does not celebrate Advent. Larger world celebrates the Christmas season. Sometimes those words get interchanged a little bit. But the larger world celebrates a time that isn't really focused on either Jesus and our need or on God and his promises. It's a time what? It's a time that's more sentimental. It's a time that, that just feels good. It's a time of parties and celebrations of gifts and fun. Not a bad time by any stretch. But it is a time that has nothing to do with Advent. And one of the easiest ways to see the difference between Advent and Christmas is to realize how much of an interruption Christ's first coming really was. You study his first coming, you realize that was not sentimental. That was not warm and cozy. So whether you think about Mary and Joseph, you think about Herod and Jerusalem, you think about shepherds and wise men, every single person that Jesus' life touched when he first came ended up being a radical disruption to that person. He interrupted what they were doing, interrupted the status quo of their lives, and then they had to shift. They had to react to him and to what he was doing because they just couldn't keep on going with business as usual. And as you study how each person responded to that disruption, you learn what that person really thinks, thought, about God, and you learn what they really thought about what God was doing in the world. God's intervention in their lives showed what they valued most. And so as you look through these different reactions, you can see that some people trusted him, they loved him. You get a sense then of, okay, what does that look like in daily life? Other people rejected him in a variety of ways, and you can see what that looks like in daily life. Both of their reactions show you what they thought about God as they responded to Jesus breaking into their lives. And so for Advent this year, over the course of this next month, we're going to study a variety of these responses. Some will be a little more negative, some will be a little more faith-filled, because they're going to help us see where our own hearts are with the Lord. They're also going to give us some idea of how we can respond to God when he interrupts our lives, just like he did all of these people. And so for today, we're focusing a little bit more on the negative end. We're going to start on the negative end. As we move through the month, we'll go more positive. But today, we're going to focus on three people, three groups of people, at the time when the wise men showed up. Three groups of people who did not respond well when Jesus broke into their worlds. So we'll look at the people living in Jerusalem. We'll look at the chief priests and scribes. And we'll look at Herod. And as you look at them, you realize that they responded badly in three different ways. They either respond with ignorance, indifference, 
or antagonism. And so today we're looking at three ways not to respond to God when he interrupts you and me. First, ignorance. Verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he? who has been born king of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. What's happening there in Jerusalem? Wise men have come from the east. Now, wise men does not mean that these guys were necessarily gifted with wisdom, but the term wise men was more of an occupation. They were astrologers, people who studied the stars and the planets. They believed that the way that the various heavenly bodies lined up or or interacted could tell you things about what was happening down here on Earth. And so these wise men show up and they want to know, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? They saw some kind of heavenly sign, a star, and somehow they connected that with a king a Jewish king being born, a king who was so important that they then traveled hundreds, maybe a thousand miles, just so that they could worship him, just so that they could be in his presence, even if that was just for a few short hours. This seems so reasonable to them to come this distance to pay homage to this new king. They think he's that special that they expect every Jewish person is going to know about this. So there's something like one to two years from the actual event of Jesus' birth, but the wise men figure they can just show up in Jerusalem, it's the capital of Israel, and everyone there will know what they're talking about. Only no one does. How do you know that? Because even though we know so little about these wise men, we don't know their names, we don't really know where they came from apart from the east, We don't know how they knew to connect the star they saw with the Israelites. We don't even know how many of them there were. A lot of traditions try to fill in the blanks, but those are all just guesses. We know so little about these men. But what we do know is what they wanted to know. We know what they were asking. Now... If you go someplace and you ask a question and that question gets answered right away, what do you do? You you act on the information you got and you stop asking. So if the wise men wanted to know, if what the wise men wanted to know was widely known among the population, then you wouldn't expect to know what they asked because they'd have asked their question, they'd have gotten an answer, and then they would have moved on. But if you go somewhere and ask a question and you don't get an answer, then you do what? you turn to someone else and ask them. And if you have to ask, and ask and ask and ask and ask and ask, then more and more people know what it is that you're asking about. That's what's happening here. You notice that the wise men don't go to the king on their own. But eventually he hears about what they're asking about. They have asked so many people that it's created such a stir that word finally makes it to King Herod. It's a lot of questions, a lot of people they talked to. A lot of people that were what? That were living in Jerusalem that just didn't know. People who were ignorant of what God was doing in the world. 
The people of God did not know what God was doing, even though he had told them over and over in Scripture. And that had to be so weird for these guys who came from the East. These wise men, these Gentiles, knew how important this event was. They knew why they were here. And no one else does. This newly born king is important enough for them to come and see him. He's in Bethlehem right now. That's what it's about five miles south of, from Jerusalem. It's a couple hours walk at the most. And no one knows anything about him. You think about these people, the Jews. They, they heard the Bible read at least every Sabbath. And what you're realizing here is that what they had been hearing just didn't stick that it didn't form the way that they interpreted life events. And so they don't know how to think about this news that these wise men have brought. They didn't know what God was doing in their own backyard. Herod did. He puts together immediately that king of the Jews is the Messiah. He got it. He's not even Jewish. But the people were clueless. And the worst part of this is that God had gone out of his way to clue them in. God promised over and over and over throughout Scripture to send his Messiah, this one who would save and rescue his people. He told them what to look for. He told them where to look. Scribes and priests point that out. Which tells you that the people are not hanging on to his words, not latching on to them as necessary for how they go about living their lives. But they're treating God's words as something that they can afford to forget and then just get on with the business of life. The Gentiles, who have no promises from God, were more interested in what God was doing in his world than his own people were. And when God interrupted his people, they didn't respond with confidence in him and his plan. Instead, they're troubled, disturbed, as some translations put it. Herod was troubled, and so in their minds, that meant trouble for everyone around them. Why is that? Because they have greater confidence in Herod being able to cause trouble for them than they have confidence in God being at work in the world to help them. They lived believing that functionally, on a day-to-day basis, that Herod and what Herod was doing was bigger than who God is. Herod could do more to impact their lives negatively than God could do to impact them positively. They're ignorant of the purposes of God. They had heard his promises, but lived as if you could just set those aside. As if his promises had nothing to do with daily life. You realize that that's not so very different from today. God is extremely clear that Jesus didn't just come one time, but that he's going to come again. This time he'll come to judge the living and the dead, as we recited earlier. He's coming one day to interrupt every person's life. But then how many of us orient our lives around that future reality? Jesus told us that a lot of people won't. He said in Luke chapter 17 that just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. 
God has promised that Jesus will return and that he will judge when he returns. But it is so easy to just get caught up in life, especially during this season, and to forget that promise that God's made. So easy not to connect that promise with how you live, but to focus on the business of living instead, just like the people did in the days of Noah, just like people did in the days of Lot. And so we can read the news without an awareness that God is in work in our world right now, without an awareness that his plans are still on the move, that his promises for the future are coming to be right now in the present, which means that he is somehow involved in the things that we read about or hear about, but we don't think about that. And so we don't understand how what we see happening in this world is connected to what God himself is doing in that world. We're ignorant of his plans and purposes. Or we can sit down at the dinner table with our friends and family. We can tell each other about what we did during the day. And we don't try to connect our smaller stories of the day with God's great story throughout history. We don't know how to see what God is doing in our lives as we talk about what we've been doing. Or we'll spend hours dreaming about travel and hobbies and things we want to do. But we won't spend the same number of hours studying what it is that God is doing. That's the situation that the wise men found in Jerusalem. Yes, their profession was a misguided attempt to understand how the spiritual heavenly realm impacts our small planet. But you realize they were trying to understand. They weren't content with being ignorant of what God is doing. And God broke through to them in a way that they could understand. While the people he'd spoken clearly to had no clue that right in that very moment he's living among them. They were oblivious to what he was doing. Their response, their troubledness showed their ignorance. It showed that they took him casually, that they weren't ready for him, even though he told them to expect him. A number of years ago, I heard my pastor at the time say, when I get to heaven... I want to be able to say to God that at least I saw it. That God, I had a glimpse of what you were doing. I may not have been able to do very much about it, but at least I saw what you were doing. And I threw myself into doing what you were doing. Don't you want to say something like that? I do. That's why those words have stuck in my head for decades. So ask yourself, do you have that sense, some idea of what God is doing as he interrupts your life now? Do you find yourself praying to understand what he's up to? Do you find yourself diving into scripture, trying to discern what God's larger purposes are? Are you regularly going back to him daily, asking, what are you up to today? What are you doing and how can I work with what you are already doing? at work doing? Do you have some idea? Or do you live in ignorance and have no idea what God is up to when he interrupts you? That's point one. Jen, there's a little drip over here. I just want to make sure your guitar is all right. Point two, indifference. The religious leaders, the priests and scribes, did have an idea what God was doing. Verse three again. 
When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. These men are different from the general population who are living in Jerusalem. They actually know the answer to what the wise men are asking. They know that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. They know the answer to the question of what God is doing. But there's no record of them going to see, much less worship, this new ruler who will shepherd God's people. And again, that's so weird to think about. The wise men have created an incredible disturbance. You think, well, they're, they're, no doubt their clothes, their accents, their looks stand out. What they're interested in is troubling. Their presence is noticeable, which means their absence is also going to be noticeable. If you'd want to find out where this new king is, you could easily just go with them. Religious leaders don't. Now, there's no way to know why they don't at this point. Could be that they already thought they had a king in Herod. They'd sort of figured out how to work with him. Or maybe they thought it's just not worth the risk of switching allegiance to another ruler. We really don't know. What we do know is that they were indifferent to the things of God. While at the same time being very religious, being known for their religiosity. They had learned a certain amount about God and about what God was doing, but they had learned it in a very dangerous way. They knew what God said, but they didn't act on what he said. Now, why is that dangerous? It's because of what we saw in Isaiah chapter 6 from last week. That if you don't embrace what God says so that it transforms you, so that it changes how you think and changes what you do, if it doesn't transform you, then your heart does what? It becomes callous to God's voice. It becomes hardened so that you're even able to take in less. Sorry, you're even less able to take in what he says the next time. The danger is that you progress in hardness. And that's a principle that you see in Scripture, that over time you are either growing softer toward the Lord or you're growing harder. A couple of passages real quickly, other passages. 2 Corinthians 3.18 puts it this way. That as we behold the Lord's glory, as we contemplate the Lord's glory, as we meditate on him, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. When you pursue this God, you progressively become more like him. You are increasingly transformed into his image. Or alternatively, like you see in 2 Timothy 3.13, if you will not let scripture correct and train you in righteousness then you will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. In other words, we are each on a trajectory in our responses to God and in our responses to what he brings into our lives. Either we are becoming increasingly glorious as we move toward him, or we are increasingly becoming less like him as we move away. And so how you respond to God in each moment is not just a one-off kind of a thing. It's not just an unusual thing that has no other connections to it. But each moment fits into this larger pattern 
one that defines your overall trajectory. Each one is one more step in the progression of your heart, either as you're growing tender to God and to all he has to say, or it's one small step of moving away from him, of becoming even more hardened to him and to his voice. We often don't see the trajectory. We don't see the pattern. And so these moments are very easy to dismiss. But if you pay attention to them, they can tell you an awful lot about the health of your soul. The priests and scribes did not act on what they knew. Read the Gospels. You discover that it's not a one-off thing. But it, was form, it formed part of a larger pattern. So over time, they had heard and ignored, heard and ignored, heard and ignored, until they got to this point where they could hear that the Messiah is living five miles away, and it doesn't move them. They can't be bothered to go see this one on whom the hope of all the ages rests. They're indifferent now to what God is doing, not interested in going to see his promised Messiah. What do you see later in their lives? Later, they're not even able to recognize God in the flesh when he stands in front of them. And they end up plotting to destroy him. Their reality has to sober you and me. The priests, the scribes, they lived doing what? Handling holy things, the the very words of God. They knew what God says, knew where the Messiah was to be born. They have some awareness that the Gentiles are searching for him, that they found him almost on their doorstep. And their hearts are not moved. That's a peculiar danger for religious people. That you and I can be more interested in religion. More interested in religious community. More interested in religious activities. Than we are interested in God. This is a warning to us. That knowing what God says has to move you to knowing him personally. You have to grow in your relationship with God. You have to keep growing in your relationship with God. Because if you're not, you will grow in your indifference. So that when God does break into your world and does interrupt you, you just won't care. So you can be ignorant of what God is doing or indifferent to it. Or third, you can be antagonistic against it. Now, in this chapter, apart from the wise men, Herod is the most clued in to what this news of the king of the Jews means. He is the most engaged. But his engagement is a complete rejection of God's purposes. He does not think this is a Messiah to worship. He thinks this is a rival to eliminate. It's helpful to realize here that Herod wasn't really Jewish. He came from a group of people known as the Edomites. They lived in the southern portion of Judea. The Roman Senate had appointed him to be king. His reign was really unpopular among the Jewish people. So when he hears that a king of the Jews has been born and he can connect this with the Messiah, Herod is hearing a challenge to his throne by someone descended from King David. But Herod's not the kind of guy who's going to give up his throne easily. He was a very gifted king. He enforced peace on Israel. He built the country up, but he was also very cruel. He was a man who ruled by violence. Over the course of his life, he killed three of his own sons, killed his wife, afraid that there was intrigue 
in his own house. He ordered that when he died, that one member of every family in the nation should be killed so that there would be real grief at his death. He didn't think there would be otherwise. And now here, his insecurity turbocharges his cruelty as he thinks about how to eliminate this new rival. And so he summons the wise men secretly, verse 7, to learn from them when the star appeared. You see how seriously he's taking this? What's that tell you? He actually thinks that the wise men are onto something. He believes in some way that heaven is backing this new baby. And at the very same moment that he's thinking that, he also thinks he can thwart heaven's plans. That somehow he can resist what God is doing. He can make the world turn out the way that he wants it to. He's not thinking that he has to fit into what God is doing, but that he can make happen whatever he wants. And so Herod tells the wise men to report back to him, verse 8, so that he too can worship the child. It's all a ploy. He has no interest in paying homage to another king. And God knows that. God warns the wise men, verse 12, not to go back to Herod. And they return home by a different way. Then we read verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Herod's cleaning house. He's making sure that there is no challenger to his throne. And Herod does not care what the cost is. Killing infants and toddlers, that doesn't bother him. He's fine with destroying families. Fine with taking children from their mothers and their fathers, children that God gave to them, taking them in a way that those children are never coming back. He doesn't mind turning soldiers into murderers who have to harden their hearts just to carry out this atrocity. Doesn't care about any of that, as long as he can keep his throne. And he does all of this, even though it's hardly going to matter to him. At this point, he's up at the last end stage of his life. He's only got a little longer to live anyway. He's going to be long gone before this child is ever a teenager. He went to incredibly disturbing lengths to hold on to his throne. And it didn't really matter. He completely rejected God's plans for this world, and he rejected God's plans for himself. (laughs) He rejected those plans, even though God made a place for him in those plans. See, God made sure that Herod knew about Jesus. He did warn the wise men in a dream not to return to Herod, but think about this. If God can warn them in a dream not to return to Herod... He could have warned them before they ever got to Jerusalem. That means that God's plans for this world included the disruption of everyone, of Herod, of the priests, of the people. Because God could have intervened before they ever got to Jerusalem, directed the wise men around Jerusalem. All these people, the people, the religious leaders, Herod, their lives were all interrupted because God planned to interrupt them. But that means that God's plans would also disrupt the innocent children of Bethlehem and their families. If God had warned the wise men earlier, Herod would not have known 
that the true king was born. He'd have had no reason to go after him. No thought of killing Bethlehem's young boys. And here's where you need to be really careful because God does not fully explain himself on this point. It's clear that by delaying his warning to the wise men, he made it public that the Messiah was born. That was important. By delaying the warning, God made it clear that Jesus' birth fulfilled the scriptural prophecies as Jesus and his parents fled to Egypt to return later. That was necessary. That delay gave each one of these ignorant, indifferent, antagonistic people an opportunity to repent, an opportunity to get on board with God and on board with what he was doing. That was merciful. All of that is true. But in our modern age, it's really tempting to judge God for that delay, to hold him in contempt, to say something like, I would never do something like that. The cost is just too great. And because I can't conceive of a good reason for doing that, then there must not be a good reason. The holy, good, just, infinitely wise God could not possibly have a good reason for doing what he did because I can't think of one. And therefore, God is not as good as I am. In our age, we're inclined to judge God, which means that a passage like this shows us not just the hearts of the people, not just the hearts of the priests and scribes, not just the heart of Herod, but it also shows us our own heart. What do I mean by that? Have you ever noticed that when you come to Scripture, you tend to identify yourself with the good people and not with the bad, not with the villains, certainly not with someone like Herod? Here's a place where Jesus will be really clear later that we should identify with Herod more than we identify with anyone else, especially more than we do with the wise men. If you flip over just a couple chapters in Matthew to chapter 5, you'll see there that Jesus says, as he's teaching, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. What did Jesus just say there? He just said there's a connection between murder and insults that both deserve the same punishment, that committing either murder or insult leaves you liable to judgment, to the danger of hell. And the only way that they can merit the same judgment is if they come from the same source. And now you have to watch your own heart again because it's so easy here to be offended and to say in your mind, I would never do that. I I, I would never kill someone. Insult them, slander them, make fun of them, sure. Murder, never. And in that moment, we take the word of God and we do what? We argue with it. We argue with God. We justify ourselves and we say to God, you're wrong. I am not like that. What I do is not that bad. And in that moment, we forget everything that we learned in a passage like Isaiah chapter 6 that we looked at last week. Where we saw that God is holy, holy, 
holy, that he is so utterly morally pure that he's in a category all by himself, that he's holy in everything that he thinks, everything that he does, everything he desires, and in everything that he says, including a passage like Matthew chapter 5 that says there's a connection between murder and insults, that says that we're more like Herod than we know. And so a heart that moves toward God and toward his purposes doesn't try to defend itself against his words, doesn't say, I would never do that, but tries to understand how what God says is true. It's a heart that says, I don't get it, God, but I want to. How is what you say true of me? And if you spend time thinking about the nature of insults, you realize that they have a purpose. You don't just randomly go around putting people down but that you do so in order to remove their impact in your life. You insult people either to keep them from talking to you or to drive them away from you or to justify in your own mind why it's okay to ignore them and ignore what they say, which is exactly the same purpose that murder serves. What does murder do? It eliminates someone from your life. It makes sure that you don't ever have to deal with their presence or with their influence ever again. Some people, like Herod, have no difficulty resorting to violence to make that happen. The rest of us do the same thing. We just do it with words and threats instead. Words and threats that shut people down, that make them think twice about challenging us, that make them not want to be around us or engage with us. I have a friend. He calls this bloodless murder, because it accomplishes the very same thing that physical murder does. That's why Jesus says that murder and insults deserve the same penalty, because they come from the same source, and they accomplish the same purpose. Which means, according to Jesus, that you and Herod, I and Herod, are in the same category. That we will do whatever it takes to remove all the obstacles to the life that we want to have. And that we'll do that especially when God's plans interrupt our lives. Now, teenagers, young people, I want to talk to you for a moment. Have you ever found yourself glaring at your parents when they tried to help you understand how to live better? Have you ever said to them, I hate you, or ever thought that when they made decisions for you that you didn't like? (laughs) Did you ever wish that they would just go away and leave you alone? Why are you doing that? Your parents are God's gift to you. God's gift to accomplish his plans and purposes in your life like no one else can. So when God thought about you and thought about what you would need in life, he looked down through history, he looked across every continent, and out of billions of people, God thought that your parents were the very best ones to accomplish his purposes in your life. That's why you're in their family. That does not make them the best parents that have ever been. But they are the best parents for you. That doesn't mean that they're always right or that they always make the right decisions. But if you lean into God's purposes, then even when they're wrong, he will work through your parents to do amazing things in you. Because they are exactly what you need from him, for him, to form his image in you. 
They are the best ones that he could imagine you having. They are ideally suited to accomplishing his purposes in your life. So when you insult them, fight against them, try to get them to back off and leave you alone, what are you doing? You're not merely rejecting them. You're rejecting the Lord. You're rejecting his plans and purposes in your life. You're rejecting his interruption into your life. I'm not talking about those horrible, abusive kind of situations. God can redeem even those. But God's given you your parents for his purposes. Why would you reject them? You do it for the same reason that Herod did. So that you can have the life that you want to have. And you're not alone in this room. Your parents know exactly what that's like. I know exactly what that's like. We're all in the same situation. Many times growing up, we've also rejected the parents that God gave to us. And we've done that with more than just our parents. We know what it is to insult the people that God's plans and purposes have allowed into our lives. Everybody, think about this. Did you ever scream at someone? Raise your voice just to drive them away from you in that moment? Did you ever wish that you never had to deal with someone again? Ever fantasize about, you know, maybe that person will move across the country and I'll never see them again? Or maybe they'll get transferred, they'll take on another job, they'll graduate and go to a different school, go to a different church. You ever dream about never seeing that person's email show up in your inbox again? Never get another text from them? What is that? It all comes from the same root. It's murder. Bloodless murder. It's you and me rejecting God's sovereignty in interrupting us. It's you rejecting God's sovereignty for putting you in relationships that you don't like. Relationships that are difficult. Relationships that he wants to use for his purposes. Relationships that you have no interest in because you're interested in something else. And so you try to get rid of people, or at least get rid of their voices, because you think that that will then get you what you want out of life. It's you saying you're in charge of your life, and that you will do everything in your power to get and keep life the way that you want it to be. And so the question in Matthew chapter 2 is not, why didn't God stop Herod? The real question is, why doesn't he stop me? And the answer is that he does. He interrupts me. He interrupts you. He breaks into your world and he challenges the things that you're living for. And he gives you a chance in that moment, in that interruption, a chance to trust him to lead you into a good life, a chance to trust him more than you trust yourself. That means if God loves you, you should expect him to interrupt you, probably more often than you like. But it also means that you can trust him when he does. Now, why? Why would you trust him? Think here about all the people whose lives are disrupted at Jesus' first advent. Think about that and ask yourself, whose life was turned upside down the most? Whose was most set on edge? Who was called on to give up the most? Who had to let go of the easiest, most engaging, most enjoyable way of life? Think about it. And you realize that it's not the people living in Jerusalem. They didn't give up the most. It's not the religious leaders. It's not Herod. 
It's not even the people that we'll consider over the course of the rest of this month. The most disrupted person is Jesus. No one's life was more affected than his was by him coming to earth. No one's life got harder than his did. No one's life was more interrupted or disrupted. Think about it. In heaven, everything was exactly the way that Jesus wanted it. Everything worked the way that he wanted it to. He was completely adored by the Father. He was adoring in return. The Spirit flowed freely between them. There was perfect harmony, perfect agreement, perfect peace, perfect joy. No relationship could be better. Never an awkward moment with the Trinity. No ripples of anger, no irritation. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they never got to the point where the honeymoon phase was over. And yet, despite all of that, Jesus came to earth where every relationship struggles. He interrupted uninterrupted joy to come to earth. Move outward from the Trinity a little bit. Jesus was surrounded in heaven by creatures who appreciated him, who liked him. Spirits he talked with, beings who put his plans into motion. What he said made complete sense to everyone around him, so they hurried to turn his ideas into reality. And then he came to earth, where people fought against him constantly. Or think about his immensity, how he existed outside of time and space, how, how, how time and space actually existed. They fit within him because he created them. Consider his glory, glory that's written in every sunset, the, the glory that you feel in every breeze that you can smell in every orange peel. Think about all that and think about how it all changed. How somehow he was able to put his attributes aside. Somehow he took his infinity and shrunk it. I, I, how do you do that? That doesn't make any sense. You can fold infinity in half, it's still infinity. He should not have been able what he, to do what he did, but somehow he stuffed himself down inside of a body. No longer could he do whatever he wanted to. No longer was he clearly understood, no longer adored, no longer all-powerful. As a baby, he couldn't even move on the planet, planet that his spirit once hovered over. He was now trapped. He pursued his own paralysis, and he couldn't communicate. This one who invented language, who made everything by the power of his word, had to make his wants and needs known through crying, eventually moving up to gesturing, had to work to learn a language, which makes you realize that now he had needs. This one who made everything no longer had everything. When he didn't eat, he grew weak. When he moved fast or worked hard, would run out of breath. He could now get sick. Later, he would tell people he had no place to call home or lay his head. His life was not even close to what it had been. He was not appreciated, regularly attacked. Herod's attempt on his life, that was just the start of a life of struggle and conflict. Isaiah tells us that he was despised and rejected. His brothers would turn on him. They didn't understand him. They called him crazy. The indifference of the religious leaders would turn into outright hatred and opposition. 
the crowds that he taught and healed and fed, they ended up calling out to crucify him. His own friends ran away so that he wouldn't get treated the same way. You have to ask why. (laughs) Why did he leave the place? Why did he leave heaven? That's what we're all trying to create here on earth, right? Why did he leave there so he could endure the misery that we face every day that we're trying to escape? Matthew tells you, verses 15 and 17, that it was to fulfill scripture. He disrupted his own life, went through all that he did so that you would know that this is the one that God had talked about. He did all of that so that you could trust him. He gave you reasons to trust him. Reasons to trust that this one disruptive child really is the Messiah. Reason to believe that only he fulfilled all the prophecies about him that had come hundreds of years earlier. And Jesus thought it was so important for you to have confidence in God's words about him that he disrupted his own life more than anyone else's. Because if you know that the smaller prophecies were fulfilled, that gives you reason to believe that the larger ones would be as well. The promises that through him, God really would save his people from their sins. That God would save us from thinking that we are so much wiser, so much more holy than he is. That he would save us from thinking that we could create a better life for ourselves than he could. Jesus came so that through him, God would reconnect you to himself. And so Jesus came to earth thinking about a tree like a lot of us do at this time of year. But his tree didn't have pretty decorations on it, didn't have presents underneath of it. He came planning for an ugly tree, a cross. It's an ancient torture device. It's a tree that would disrupt his life even more than it already had been, more than you and I will ever understand. It was a tree that would rip apart his relationship with God so that you you and I could enter in and start one instead. God thought that goal was important enough to disrupt his own life. He thought that was so important that he permanently became human and then lived a really hard, difficult life. Look here at the contrast between God and Herod. Herod will kill your son so that he can keep his throne. God gave up his own son so that one day you can share his throne with him. When Jesus enters your world and disrupts it, he doesn't turn it upside down anywhere near as much as he turns his own upside down. This God will break into your world. He will shake it up. You can count on that. It's not going to be comfortable living here. Don't expect it to be. Do not believe the sentimentality of the Christmas season. That is not what God is doing. But when your life is hard, remember that it never comes close to what Jesus put himself through for you. Because our God never asks more from his people than he's already been willing to give for his people. And remember, too, that he never asks his people to walk this road alone without him. When Jesus, I'm sorry, when Joseph and Mary fled to Egypt, God literally went with them. Jesus went with them, just like he'll go with you. That was a taste of what life is like now as Jesus lives inside of us. 
The only reason that he interrupts your life is so that he can be with you and you can be with him permanently. There isn't any safer, wiser place to be on this earth than in the middle of his interruptions. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you do not leave us to ourselves. Lord, that you don't leave us to our ignorance, our indifference, our antagonism, but that you have invaded our lives and that you continually call us out of ourselves back to you. Thank you, Lord, that you have much bigger plans and purposes for us and that you are absolutely determined to carry them out in our lives. Thank you that we can trust you, even when we're confused about what life, what's happening in life or, or why things are the way they are. Thank you that you do not ignore us, but that you come to us. Lord, move our hearts so that we respond to you and come to you as well. In Jesus' name, amen.